0: Perhaps some of you have seen the movie, The Chariots of Fire. It's a great classic movie that that tells the story of Eric Liddell, who is a devout Christian who was running in the 1924 Olympics. One of the fun dynamics of the film is that it, it really emphasizes and highlights the reasons, the motivations that these runners were running. Eric Liddell, of course, was a man of great Christian faith, and and on the greatest stage of sport, he demonstrated that he did not run for his fame or his glory, but for the glory of God. He didn't just say these things, he was famously willing to back this up, as he was even willing to drop out of the Olympics in order to not violate his convictions about running on the Sabbath. Sabbath. Because Liddell was more concerned with keeping God's approval and glorifying God than receiving the approval of man. He has a great line that is famous. He says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Another figure that was featured in the film was uh, perhaps lesser known. His name was Harold Abrams. This Jewish Englishman also was running in the 1924 Olympics, and he, like Liddell, spoke openly about why he ran and what the race meant to him. He said, I'm a Cambridge man, and I am an Englishman, first and last, and what I have achieved and what I intend to achieve is for my family, my university, and my country. But even though Abrams boasted that he was an Englishman and a Cambridge man. It was very clear that he was still deeply anxious about his identity. He felt a desperate need to prove himself. He said this, and I quote And now, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will rise, I will raise my eyes, and look down that corridor just four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence, but will I? Ten lonely seconds to justify his existence. Do you see the difference in Liddell and Abrams? For Liddell, running was a way to glorify God. For Abrams, running was a way to find approval and identity for himself. If I have just ten lonely seconds to justify my existence, will I be able to? For most of us, if we're honest, that practically speaking, we are much more like Abrams than Liddell. As Christians, even though we may have some degree of comfort and assurance that our eternity with Christ is safe and, and secure and that he loves us no matter what, for many of us, that's just not quite enough for us. And for Abrams, it wasn't enough. For him, right? It wasn't enough for him to be an Englishman or even a Cambridgeman, but he needed to be a winner too. For most of us, we live in the same way. That when it comes to our self-worth and when it comes to our identity and our self-esteem, we might say that we believe that God loves us and that God accepts us as we are, but we still feel a desperate need prove ourselves. This desperate longing to, to be a winner. This anxiety, this insecurity, I believe, comes from a small understanding of the gospel. Now, there's been a lot that's been happening in the life of our church over the last several months, but in the midst of all that, we have been working our way through a series on the gospel, the gospel for daily life that's right an entire series about the gospel and for some of us hopefully a lot of us it's challenged our thinking a little bit many of us already know what the gospel is I imagine that if I polled you we could probably get some good explanation some of us have heard it all of our lives we were the children doing sign language during a song growing up in church hearing the gospel The gospel, of course, is the good news that God is willing to save sinners through Jesus Christ and through his death, burial, and resurrection. And for many of us, some of us even as children, have made the claim that the most important decision that we've ever made in our life is that we have decided to follow Jesus, that we believe in the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's our hope to get to heaven. I hope that's true of you this morning. But for so many of us, that's all the gospel is. It just stops right there. It's, uh, it's insurance that we won't go to a bad place when we die. That's all the gospel is to us. And that's a problem. You see, many of us are tempted to think of the gospel mainly as this thing that, that happened in the past, Sure, it's important, and sure, it's the first step of, on this journey of faith. But practically speaking, it doesn't really affect our lives that much. It doesn't really change how you live your day to day. Think of your Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock. How does the gospel change and affect how you're going to live on Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock? For many of us, we'd say, you know, I don't really know. I don't really know. But you see, I don't think that's a biblical view of the gospel. It's not a very rich and full understanding of the gospel. You see, over the last several weeks, we have been seeing in the Bible that the gospel is not just something that is for unbelievers. It certainly is, but it's not just for unbelievers and, or new Christians or immature Christians or wayward Christians. The gospel we've seen is for Christians, One of the places that we can see this in the Bible, there are many, is in the book of Colossians chapter 1, where Paul is saying, you've been hearing about the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. And then he says, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. What's the gospel doing? It's bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. What Paul is saying is that the gospel is a present tense reality. The gospel is constantly growing and it's constantly bearing fruit. That's why we've said every week that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z, the beginning and the end of the Christian life. We've been using this chart to illustrate how the gospel helps us grow in our walks with the Lord. Hopefully now you're becoming more familiar with it. The claim that I've been trying to make and trying to convince you of is that the way that we grow in the Christian life, the way that you grow, the way you grow is by becoming more aware of God's holiness and more aware of your own sinfulness. Because when that happens, you realize that there's this big gap in your life and you need the cross, the work and the person of Jesus Christ to bridge that gap for you. And the bigger that gap grows, the more you see God as holy, and the more you see yourself as sinful, the bigger the cross gets, and the more you appreciate it. That's called worship. That is the growth, that is the pattern of growth in the Christian life. But of course, there's a problem. And as always, the problem is sin. Sin disrupts this Process It it means that this doesn't always work like this in our lives. That's why I would suggest that there are some of us who, even though we are Christians, we have not grown in any distinguishable way in the last three years. Could that be a description of you and your walk with the Lord? How have you grown? How are you different as a believer in the last three or four or five years? You see, because of sin we tend to shrink or minimize the cross. And we've talked about a couple ways we do this. One way is that we pretend. We pretend that we're better than we actually are. We try to convince ourselves and we try to convince other people and maybe even God that, that we're pretty good. We also try to perform. That is, we minimize God's holiness so that we can meet, we think, his standard. His goal is too high, like that 10-foot basketball goal, and so we lower it to something that we can dunk on, something easier. And you see, as a result of this, when we do this, when we pretend, when we perform, we actually live with a small understanding and a small appreciation of Christ and his gospel, which means we don't have any reason to sing. We don't really have many, much compelling reason to obey when it's hard. God is boring to us like this. It's a small gospel. And there's a significant danger here. It's a danger that I think that we need to be aware of. Now, I know that for some of you, this is maybe the third or fourth or fifth, I don't know, time that you've seen me walk through this chart. And, and you, maybe you've got it. And that's great. I'm glad. But the danger is that we can be tempted to think, oh, it's a small cross. Jesus doesn't deserve a small cross. Jesus needs a big cross, right? The problem, is, thank you, the problem is for us is that this chart, it's an abstraction, right? It's, it's, it, it's not really real. Because the thing is, is that when you and I shrink the cross, when we pretend and when we perform and when we aren't growing, we're stealing glory from Jesus Christ. We become glory thieves, taking what he has earned and what is due his name. So the question for us is this. How in the world do we keep from doing this? How in the world do we keep from shrinking the cross? How can we grow? Well, that's what I want to talk about for the next couple of weeks if the last couple of sermons have been somewhat negative, as in don't do this, right? We're moving to, to become a little bit more positive, like let's do this now. And I'm not trying to keep you in suspense, so let me just go ahead and give you the main point right at the front end. I'm going to try to show you and convince you that in order to grow, you must believe the promises of the gospel. That's the trick. Believing The promise of the gospel. Now that sounds real easy, but I think we'll see it's not not so easy sometimes. In order to experience the power of gospel transformation, in order to be free from sin, in order to be free from anxiety and all sorts of other burdens that burden us, you must believe the promises of the gospel. We're going to highlight two specific ones because I think they are central and foundational. Two specific gospel promises. One is passive righteousness, and the other is adoption as sons. We'll be talking about these for a couple of weeks. So passive righteousness and adoption. Now, I'm claiming that if you want to grow, that if you want to enjoy God's grace, and if you want to enjoy gospel peace, then you must understand deeply and constantly anchor your soul to these two gospel truths. What that means is that in Christ, passive righteousness means that God approves of us. And the adoption part means that he has welcomed us into his family and treated us as sons and daughters. Passive righteousness and adoption. But before we do this, I wanna try to lay a little bit more foundation about our problem, so we can understand the root of our problem. And the point of this is so that we can begin to identify it in our lives. And so we need to see two themes that are in the scriptures, identity and righteousness. Identity and righteousness. So to do this, let's go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. And you can turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 1. I've got it up here on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 1. Look down at verse 27. The Bible says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, the reason this text is important, one of the reasons, is that it helps us see that God establishes our identity. God is the one who establishes our identity as a human being. God is the one who has made us, and he has made us like him. We are in his image so that means that our worth and our identity and our value is secure. Boys and girls, I want you to all look at me wherever you're sitting right now. It does not matter what anyone else says about you. God has made you and he has established your identity. Well, you just sang a song about that this morning because what God says about you is so much more important than what boys and girls at school or what people on Facebook say about you. God has established our identity. Our identity comes from God. And the Bible goes on to tell us not just about our identity, but what he actually made us for, what he made us to do. We're image bearers. And what that means in part is that we are to be fruitful and multiply. We are supposed to live in the world, to exercise dominion, and to live in such a way that shows everybody what God is like. We are to reflect him in how we live. We are to fill the earth and to rule over it in such a way that reflects God and multiplies his image. So we get our identity from God. It is secure and it is settled. But there's another sense in this passage where we learn about the righteousness we get from God. All right. Now, the word righteousness is a church word, right? It's a big, big word. It's got lots of uh, syllables. And it's, it's a word that a lot of times we think in terms of being really, really right or really, really good or holy. But I want to use it in a slightly different sense this morning. It's, it, it does mean that. But I want us to think about it in terms of our rightness, our rightness, our sense of, am I okay? Do I, do I measure up? Am I good enough? That's what I mean by rightness. Do you notice how often you're asking that and how often you make decisions thinking about that? If you're active on social media, this is a pretty significant part of what you do on social media. You're, you're watching how people react to you and you're wondering, am I right? Am I okay? Do they approve? And I hope that you see the ways you do this in your life, and I've been praying that we would do this more because it is so deeply rooted in us. It doesn't matter. This is not just for boys and girls or young adults. It doesn't matter what your age or gender or profession is. All of us are seeking to know, am I okay? We see in Genesis that this sense of okayness also comes from God. If you look at this next slide here in chapter chapter 1, verse 31, after God had made all things on earth, what did he say about them? And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what, church? Very good. It was very good. When God made man, he declared man to be very good. We're okay. That sense of rightness, that sense of okayness was established by God. Boys and girls, have you ever wondered why there's nakedness at the beginning of the Bible? Isn't that weird, right? Why did did God forget to make them with clothes on? What's going on? Why is there nakedness at the beginning of the Bible? Well, the reason is, is that when God made Adam and Eve, he made them naked because they were unashamed. They had nothing to be ashamed of. They were perfectly secure. They were totally exposed before God. And they were totally exposed before each other. And they had no shame. You see, God made you. And God made me and all humanity with a deep sense. A desperate sense of longing. A need to be approved. To be valuable. To be secure. And to be accepted. You We're hardwired by God to crave approval. You were. His approval. His approval. And this, of course, is where we come into another problem. If you keep reading in the book of Genesis, we, we see that sin enters the world, and sin does what sin always does. It messes things up. Remember that in your life. Sin will always bring pain and destruction in your life. And that's what happens here. The whole tone changes once sin enters the picture. God has been going through each day and pronouncing all that he has made as being what? Good, good, good. And then he makes man and he says, very good. And then all of a sudden that changes. Instead of pronouncing things as good, now God is cursing things. He's walking around cursing things. And not just some things, he curses everything. He curses the serpent, he curses the man, he curses the woman, he curses the ground, he curses all of his creation. And so now instead of life flourishing, life is going to be full of problems. Of course, most ominously, we're all going to die. Death enters the world because of sin. And so now instead of Adam being, Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed, what happened? Their eyes were opened, and they begin to realize that they were naked. It wasn't that they didn't know it before; it was that they were they weren't embarrassed. They had no shame. Now they were naked and ashamed, and so Adam and Eve scrambled to hide. Right? They scrambled to cover their nakedness from each other and from God. Here's the thing: the curse is God saying, "You're not okay anymore. There's a problem." You are not okay anymore. You're not very good anymore. And so God drove man and, eat, man and woman out of the garden, away from his presence. God is in effect saying what he says all throughout the Bible. If you want to try to find happiness, if you want to try to find significance and identity apart from me, good luck. Go try. Boys and girls, students, young people, If you try to find happiness and value and meaning apart from God, it's going to end in destruction. You'll fail, as all before us have failed. Adam and Eve were separated from God, the very source of their identity, the very source of their Rightness. And you see, it's so important for us to understand this because we need to begin to make sense of the deepest longings that we feel in our hearts. The deepest longings are because we were actually designed by God to long for his acceptance, his approval and significance and security. And God gave it to us all in him. And now sin has disrupted all this. Which means that you and I, no matter what your age, and even if you are a Christian, we are tempted to struggle with this deep sense of alienation, alienation from God and alienation from other people. Sin has disrupted all of our deepest longings. It hasn't killed them, but it's perverted them. That's why even in your best relationships, There's a tinge of loneliness at the bottom of your heart. That's why even when you do your best before God, you feel like you don't quite measure up. We were made to find all of our happiness and longings to be fulfilled in him. And you see, since we were made to find our identity in God, and since sin has disrupted that relationship, you know what that means? We have to go find it somewhere else. You have to go find it somewhere else. You and I cannot live without identity and without assurance that we're okay. It'd be easier to live without oxygen. That's part of who we are. But we also can't find identity and righteousness anywhere but in God. But that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? So we seek it out in all sorts of other things. And the problem is, is that if you seek your identity, if you seek approval in anyone or anything else than God, you're seeking it in something else that's already been cursed. Right? God has cursed all of creation, so they are, and they're not God. When we seek it in people and all sorts of other things, we will come up short. That's why just a few chapters later in Genesis, we read this strange story about the Tower of Babel. Boys and girls, have you ever wondered why the Tower of Babel is in the Bible, right? What's the point of that? Well, one of the things we see here is the way that these folks were building a tower. Why? Do you remember what the Bible says? To make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. You see, ever since the fall... All of humanity has been trying to find our identity and our purpose and our sense of rightness in things and people that are not God. This is what Paul talks about in the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Look at this text together. This is an incredibly important text for us to understand. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. Okay, did you see that phrase here in the beginning? They are seeking to establish their own righteousness. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That having rejected God's righteousness, God's way of saying you are okay, we all try to establish our own righteousness. And when our identity is not rooted in God, we'll seek to root it in other places. We are all trying to do this. We are all looking for some other way to define ourselves. There's a sense where for all humanity, we spend our entire lives in this fallen world trying to find our identity and our righteousness. It's not that hard to see this. We could spend much more time, but it's not that hard to see this. Just go to a middle school or a high school, right? any sort of social activity. Students and young adults are trying to figure out who they are and how they fit into the world. right? It was the same thing for me. It's more pronounced than grade school, it seems. When I was in high school, you had the athletes, you had the smart kids, you had the pretty kids, you had the musicians, you had uh, you know all these different categories. And then you even had the goths who were the category who didn't want to be a category, but they were still their own category, right? It, it, all these different ways that people are trying to make a name for themselves, trying to find their identity. And there's a tremendous, even I'd say irresistible pressure to try to make an identity for yourself, trying to be somebody. But this isn't just unique for students, not at all. It's a universal problem no matter what your age. And so even us as adults, we, we do our own things to try to fit in and try to be accepted socially. But I think one of the ways that we can see this perhaps most clearly is in the way that we, even especially as adults, try to establish our own righteousness, Remember, our own sense of am I okay? We're all longing to measure up. All of us are. You want to measure up. Now, the standard may be different, right? We may have different standards. We may value different things, but we feel this desperate need to meet that standard, whatever that standard may be. You can find this by looking at what is it that drives you. What? drives you. Whether it's that drive you have to sell the most insurance or to get the best grades or to have the cleanest house or the best educated, best behaved kids, right? Whatever it is that is driving you. You see, we're all hungry. Hungry and driven by our standard of success. Maybe you love the fame that comes with your profession. Some of us have professions that are that are valued by society and noble. Maybe it's how much money you make or some degree that you have or some title. Or maybe you're embarrassed by what you do. Maybe you're ashamed. That dynamic is the same in both, a, an, an attempt to identify with our success. Maybe you students are totally driven in school because you have to get in that college. You have to get in that career path. You have to make your parents happy. What if you disappoint your teachers? You see, we're just all trying to establish that we're valuable. We do this big time in our relationships. We crave the approval of those who have influence in our lives, whether it's our teachers or our parents or our boyfriends or our peers or whatever it is. And so we become people pleasers. Unable to say no, unable to uh, put away what other people are thinking about us. We become obsessed. What is she thinking about me? What is he saying about me? Once again, Tim Keller comments on this. He says, we don't really live in a democracy. We live in a meritocracy. We live in a show-me-your-resume kind of world. We know this is how this works, right? You know you're constantly getting sized up on Facebook. You know that, right? And you post accordingly. You know you're constantly being sized up in the gym, or in the office, or in Sunday school, or in the parking lot, or at school, or wherever, right? And since you and I have this deep longing to know that we are okay, and so we'll try to find this sense of rightness anywhere but God. And if we do that, if we try to find our approval anywhere but God, we are going to constantly be anxious and maybe depressed. Because there is no person, there is no career, there is no position, there is no accomplishment that will ever satisfy you. This is why athletes don't just win one championship, they want another one and then another one, and it's never enough. This is why you never meet your final dollar goal, right? You always want more. We always want more. That craving that we have to achieve, that craving we have to be okay, it will never be satisfied until you're satisfied in God. You see, because you and I were made to find our righteousness, our sense of being okay in God, and he alone is the only one able to fulfill this longing. Why? He's the only one that's infinite. He can keep satisfying you. And if you try to find your identity and your okayness apart from God, you are going to burn out. You're going to spend all of your energy striving to make a name for yourself and striving to measure up. By the way, we talked a couple weeks ago about pretending and performing. That's exactly what those are. Those are just religious expressions of trying to make a name for ourselves and trying to prove that we are measuring up. That's what Romans 10 teaches us, that if we reject God's righteousness, we're always going to be trying to find it on our own. So let me ask you a question. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of trying to make a name for yourself? Aren't you tired of trying to keep other people's approval or trying to get it in the first place? Aren't you tired of trying to measure up? I am. And I bring good news this morning. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ meets these needs once and for all. Which means that even though you and I are cursed sinners, the gospel is God's provision To meet the deepest longings of your soul. This is so much more than about going to heaven. The gospel is God's way to meet the deepest longings of your soul. And the more that we understand this, the more that we believe this and live in this. I'm not just talking about sure I believe it. I'm saying the more we live like this, the more we are going to enjoy peace and happiness like you've never dreamed of. And you know what else is going to happen? You're going to start growing like crazy. You'll start growing like crazy. The deepest longings of your heart will never be met until you meet them in Christ. Now, you may be thinking, all right, preacher, I'm with you so far. Sounds great. How does this work? I mean, tell me, what about Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock? What, what do I do? you got to show me. Okay, let's, let's try to do that. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about passive righteousness fancy word, and adoption, a less fancy word, but kind of abstract. So let's, let's think about that. When I talk about passive righteousness, let's see if i got a slide that's got the word up here. Oh, okay, hang on, we'll come there in a second. we talk about passive righteousness, the big fancy theological word, if you're wired like that, is imputed righteousness. I like the word passive righteousness because it helps us see that it's righteousness that we don't earn, right? It is given to us. It is a gift. We call it passive because you receive it, which means you don't have to work for it. You don't have to work for it. Now, let me go ahead and show this to you in the Bible. Look down in the book of Romans, chapter 3. And I'm finding the more I understand this, the more I see this all over the Bible. Romans chapter 3. This is one of my favorite spots to, to see this. Okay. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, I don't know about you, but when I read Paul, sometimes I'm like, come on, man, just say it, right? Why do you got to use all these big words and this complicated logic, right? He can be hard to understand, right? So, so let's, let's try to think about this. What he's doing here in the middle, he's saying, when he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to this new righteousness, he's saying that this new righteousness that he's getting ready to describe, it's not totally new. The prophets were looking ahead to it, right? So if you would, I'm going to take that out. Don't tell, right? We're going to put that in parentheses so we can understand it a little better, all right? I think we can follow the logic a little better. So Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, still kind of hard to understand maybe? Here's what Paul's saying. Normally... The way that you measure up to God is by keeping the law, right? Righteousness comes through the law if you keep it perfectly, right? That's God's standard for righteousness. That's God's standard for being okay. You keep the law. You do not sin. You perfectly fulfill the law. How's that going for you? That's not going very well for me. I'll tell you what. I try really hard, and I still fall a lot, a lot, right? That's not going well. In fact, I'm so bad at keeping the law that I'm going to die for it. In fact, it is our inability to keep God's law that has gotten us into this whole mess. Because of the law, we're going to die. But Paul's saying, hey, I've got great news. Now there's a righteousness that is apart from the law. It's different. It's coming separate. Not different. It's coming separately from the law. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God, how's it come? Through faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that you don't have to do anything to get this righteousness. You don't have to obey. You don't have to fulfill the law. You don't have to satisfy the standard. You don't have to keep it perfectly. It comes through faith. That's why it's called passive. You are receiving it as a gift by faith. Okay, now I still think that this can be hard to under- understand. So let's, let's try to break it down a little bit more. Most of the time when you and I think about the gospel, we think in terms of forgiveness, That's good, right? We think in terms of forgiveness. Maybe you've even heard this big church word called justification. Anybody heard the word justification? Let me see your hands. Justification, right? Now, one of the best ways that we've heard to understand, and by the way, justification means this is how you're made right with God. This is how you are made okay. This is how you have a relationship with God. Now, a lot of times when we think about the gospel, we just think about our forgiveness, That Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. right? That's the gospel. When we think gospel, that's what we think of. And that's good. Maybe you've even heard it like this, that that justification is that in Christ, God sees you just as if you had never sinned. Just as if you had never sinned, you have been forgiven. This is a glorious truth. This is a glorious truth. Praise God. God, He will not hold me accountable for the sins that I have committed. Praise God for that. Live in that. Love that. Praise Him for it. But here's the thing that's only part of the gospel. In fact, if that's all that the gospel was, it would be impossible for you and I to go to heaven. Here's what I mean it's not enough that we never disobey. We have to also obey. It's not enough that we just don't disobey and do things wrong. We have to always and perfectly obey. We have to actually keep the law. That's where passive righteousness comes in. Justification is just as if I had never sinned. Well, then passive righteousness is just as if I had always obeyed. It's the positive side of that. Do you see this? Just as if I had always Obeyed, Church, I have incredible news. The gospel is not just that Jesus paid the penalty of sin for you. The gospel is also that Jesus has kept, always kept, the law for you. If you like definitions, here's a definition. God has not only forgiven your sin, if you're in Christ, but he has also credited you with Christ's positive righteousness. Okay. This can still be hard to understand. So I've asked for some help. I need Miss Allie Denton to come on stage and help me. We're going to try to help all these adults understand what we're talking about, Allie. Okay. All right. So let's say, you can stand right there, Allie. Okay. Let's say that in order to get into heaven, you have to have a clean white cloth. Okay. Would that work? You, You with me? With me, old folks, right? In order to get into heaven, you have to have a clean, white cloth. And it just so happens that I have a very clean, white cloth. Here, Allie, you can hold this, right? So the problem is, is that every time that you disobey, this cloth gets dirty. It gets stained. I didn't make it too dirty. Well, not yet. All right, it gets stained. It gets dirty. And so, in fact, instead of us having a clean cloth, our cloth looks more like this. You might want to hold it like that. Okay. Careful. Hold your nose if you need to. Okay, so now, Allie has a very, very dirty cloth. So, so, so this is not enough to get into heaven because it's dirty. Now, in forgiveness, this is what Jesus does. On the cross, Jesus takes away our dirty cloth. That's great news. But, but what's Allie need to get to heaven? She needs a clean cloth, too. She may not have any sin, right? Jesus may have taken care of that. Passive righteousness is that Jesus gives her his record, the clean cloth. Does that make sense? Everybody give Allie a round of applause. Let's think about it in one other way. Let's suppose that there is a man who lived under a bridge. Let's say he lives under the 321 bridge. This man's made some bad choices, so he's homeless, and not only is he homeless, but he is completely, completely broke. I mean, he does not have a single quarter in his pocket, which is wild because he has a good education. He has a college education, but that's kind of part of the problem because he graduated from college with $54,000 of college debt, right? Student loans. So now he's in a bad position. Not only is he completely broke, but he actually is negative $54,000 in debt. So let's suppose that someone came along and had pity on this man and his position. And out of his pity and out of his generosity and out of his love, he paid off his student loans. $54,000 of loans gone. $54,000 of debt paid for. Right? That, I mean, that would be a good day for this homeless guy under the bridge. The problem is, though, is that he is still completely broke. He's still completely broke. So passive righteousness, the way that works is that that would be illustrated. You see, because for many of us, the gospel is just that Jesus came and paid off our big debt. But if that's all that happens, then we are still broke without any positive righteousness. We haven't kept the law. We haven't loved our neighbor like we should. Sure, Jesus has gotten rid of our sin, but we still don't have any good deeds. So let's think about our broke homeless guy again. Let's say that another man comes along and he actually hands this broke homeless man, no debt, but he hands this broke homeless man a debit card with his name on it. And he says, this is your debit card. And I've put you now as an account holder on my account. You can draw out of it as much as you want without limit forever as much as you want. And don't worry about running out because I actually have $9 billion in the bank, right? Now, that's passive righteousness. It's not just that Jesus paid off our debt. Jesus credited us with his wealth. Just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had already and always obeyed. Jesus didn't just pay off our sin debt. He deposited his fortune of perfect obedience into our bank accounts. So, church, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven and you are righteous. Forgiven and righteous. Isn't it amazing? You don't seem very amazed, but I'll, I'll bear with you, right? You see, but there's a problem. The problem is that not only do we barely understand this process theologically, but we don't live in light of this on a day-to-day basis, And what that means is that when we have to answer the question, am I okay, we may say, yeah, I'm okay in Jesus, but we still go looking for satisfaction elsewhere. If you don't trust that you receive righteousness by faith, you're going to keep looking for it on your own. That means a lot of things. One thing it means is that when you mess up, you're going to be miserable. Because deep down, you're banking on your obedience to keep God happy. Martin Luther said something to the effect of, if we wander away or forget our passive righteousness, then our hearts will always default back to works or self-righteousness. Because you and I were designed to answer the question, am I okay? And we can only be okay in God. Now I'm going to build on this in coming weeks. We're not going to do a lot of application or implications yet. I hope that you're seeing some of them. But let me give you this, let me leave you with this. Here's the whole point of my sermon. If you are in Jesus, you're good enough. Which is an amazing story for me if you knew the details of my life. If you are in Jesus, you are good enough. So relax, you can rest. This is why Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I can and will give you rest. You don't have to do anything else. You can't gain more approval, and you can't lose God's approval. If you are in Jesus, God is perfectly happy with you because God is perfectly happy with Jesus. That's true on your best day, And that's true on your worst day. But what that also means, and I have to tell you this, if you're not in Jesus, you're not okay. And you're going to wander with anxiety and despair, constantly trying to make a name for yourself, constantly trying to find someone that will tell you you're okay, and you will not find it. So turn to Jesus. Let him pay for your sin and credit your account faith, righteousness through faith. Will you join me in prayer?